What does it mean to believe? For more than 30 years, the New Age prophet of the 20th century taught, na- taught on national television that what mattered most was belief. Being a believer, she would say, in something. Believing in yourself. Believing in others. Believing in something. Oprah Winfrey would encourage her viewers daily to find something and believe in it. On one occasion, she had an atheist on her show. And during the interview, the atheist began to describe the transcendent beauty of the ocean and how this atheist believed in it. She stopped him at one moment and said, I don't see you as an atheist because you're a believer in something. One would summarize this new age thinking as belief in believing. Faith in faith. There is this philosophy in new age world that we live in that we just need to believe. Just have faith, we are told. But as we read our Bibles, the Bible paints a very entirely different picture and definition of what faith or belief is. In the New Testament, belief would be better translated with the English word trust or rely. Trusting something or someone requires knowledge and action. It requires me to know that if I was to walk out on a bridge that is suspended over a cavern, that I have knowledge that the bridge will hold me, but that I actually go and stand on it. New Testament belief is not only knowledge, but action. Walking out onto the bridge. You could say you believe the bridge would hold you, but in a New Testament sense, you're not believing in it. You're not trusting it until you actually walk out on it. As Christians, we know that the word belief or faith is a very important word. It's central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the response that the gospel demands. Believing in Jesus. We use the word often, I believe in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. But do we have a biblical understanding of belief? For example... Many misunderstand and think that faith in Jesus or believing in Jesus is merely passing a Sunday school quiz. I know who Jesus is. I know these facts about Jesus. He was born in a manger. He lived a good life. He died not because of his own sins, but because of the sins of these people that he was dying for. And then he, he, he came alive three days later. And then, well, he went back to heaven. Friends, those are historical facts. Those are undisputed historical facts that that, that requires no faith at all to trust in them. Saving faith, the Bible says, is faith that depends upon the information received. It, It is relying on him for something. The world believes that We just merely have knowledge of something. But the Bible says that we believe and trust in 
this one who came. This word belief will come up in the Gospel of John over and over and over again. Believe in Jesus. He believed in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. He came that all those who might believe in him might have the right to be called sons of God again and again and again. And so as you're studying the Gospel of John, you better understand what that word believe means or you will be derailed very quickly. And so this morning as we think about what it means to believe in Jesus I want you to understand that it not, not only is about knowledge, theology, but theology that leads to action. There, there is a response. The gospel of Jesus Christ begs us to respond to it, both positively or negatively. So if you were to share the gospel with someone, there is always going to be a response. It is only, it's going to be acceptance. Like, I believe that. I'm going to give my life to that. I'm going to turn from my sin and follow Jesus. That's action, right? Or it's going to be, no, thank you. I'm going my own way. And in the Gospel of John, John paints pictures of both responses to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to the demand to follow Jesus. There will be some that you will find who pick up their cross and follow. Men like Andrew and Peter, Nathaniel and Philip, who just, just leave everything behind and go and follow Jesus. And there will be others who struggle. Men like Nicodemus who wrestle and fight and, and wonder, like, do I really want to give up everything I have and this power and prestige and, and leadership within the, within the nation of Israel to follow this man? And you'll see Nathaniel at the be- or, uh, Nicodemus at the beginning and he doesn't come back up until the end. And what is he doing but following Jesus? You'll see Those who reject to follow Jesus. Jesus is so great, so transcendent, so powerful, so wondrous that they like run out of town. They're like, no, thank you. I want no part about a man who does those kind of things. Friends, this morning, the question I want you to have in your mind is, do I believe in Jesus? Who is this Jesus that I believe in? And how does it change my life? Well, the gospel of John was written by John. I know. Go to seminary to learn these things. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' early followers. Of course, he's well known because he was the beloved disciple. He reveals himself. uh, He never calls himself by name in the Gospel itself, but he always refers to him as the one that Jesus loved, uh, the one who was beloved by Jesus. And John was a pastor, an elder in Ephesus, So many scholars believe that John is writing this while he was in Ephesus, pastoring the church there, perhaps alongside Timothy, writing this letter sometime late 70, maybe even as late as 100 AD. Of course, John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. This beloved disciple, the one who endured to the end, the one that was was banished onto the island of Patmos, the one who would give his life for Jesus. And so John is writing to a specific group, but, it, but this, this gospel, unlike the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is a very general gospel. It's a gospel that sort of transcends historical context, though it's still there. One reason why many believe that he's writing this sometime later after 70 AD, and I'm going to argue this throughout as we study through this, is that this must have been written post-destruction of the temple. So the the temple was destroyed in the late 60s A.D. 
And, and John here paints a picture of the new temple throughout the gospel. That Jesus is the new temple. We don't we need to worry about the temple in Jerusalem, John is going to argue, because there is a new temple who has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And as we begin this morning, I want us to go to the end so that we can better understand the beginning. John helpfully tells us exactly why he took up a pen under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and penned this particular gospel. So if you have your Bibles open, turn it to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31. We'll get back to chapter 1 in just a moment. John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why John took up the pen to write. Notice here that he wrote these things that you might believe and that by believing you might have life. There's that word belief there that is essentially important to understanding this gospel. Now, as you hear that, you think immediately in your mind, if you're a Christian this morning, well, this must be an evangelistic book because he wrote it that people might believe. But see, you're reading that as a as an English reader. But John's point here is that you might be believing. In other words, New Testament biblical belief is not a single moment in time. It's not something you just do once. Like, oh, I believed in Jesus, past tense. The Bible, though, paints a picture that belief is a lifetime of experience. It's a lifetime of believing and trusting the one who came. So this morning, we want to really think about a number of questions as we're reading through this gospel. We want to sort of have in our minds three questions And these three questions this morning will be the outline. How does this passage reveal Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? Look there again at chapter 20, verse 31, or 30. Verse 31, (laughs) trust myself, 31. But these are written so that, purpose statement, you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the first question we want to ask this morning is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? How are we to respond to that? Notice here, secondly, why do I need to trust Jesus? Notice this other purpose statement, this result statement, that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, we could say it negatively, negatively. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have life. If you don't believe, so there's this demand to respond, and that response is trust. Why do I need to trust Jesus? And finally, how does Jesus transform my life? That you might have life in his name. That is, that by believing in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, there is a transforming power that takes place in your life. You become born again. So these are the themes as you read chapter by chapter, those three questions. Those are the three questions you want to ask yourself. So when you get into chapter two and you're reading this week and and you come and you gather, you want to have those questions. Who is Jesus? How is this passage revealing to me that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God? 
How is this passage calling me to trust in Jesus as the one from heaven? Well, what is this passage revealing? And then finally, how does this passage show me the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How does it change me? Well, with those in our mind, I want us to come now to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, to be clear, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, are perhaps one of the most richest passages in all of the scriptures. John spares no detail in painting us the picture of the preexistent Son, the eternal Logos. This morning I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1, and read down through 18. We'll consider it through the end of the chapter, but just in reading. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is, the, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, here in this prologue, John introduces the themes that he will un, that he will reveal throughout the letter, throughout the book. The book of John is, some, is really organized around four sort of big ideas. There's the prologue here in, that we just read. Then he begins in verse 19, the first section, which ends in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, the end, he makes a transitional statement and then moves to chapters 13 through 20, which we just read the end of chapter 20, which he makes that summary statement. Then in chapter 22, he has a a postlude, a sort of conclusion that wraps everything together. In the first 12 chapters, John's focus is on the one who has come to reveal the Father. You just heard it, right? He's the one who reveals the Father. Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father's glory. And through chapters 1 through 12, Jesus will again and again say, I'm here to do one thing, and that's my Father's will. I'm here to reveal him. Then John will make this transitional statement. Well, he'll marry together the idea of the revelation of the father and the purpose of the son. That is, he came to be the lamb of God, the sacrifice, the savior of the world. 
And so in chapters 13 through 20, the the focus will be on the passion of Jesus. On his death for our sins. Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal the Father's glory and to die for sinners. And that's the point of this morning's sermon. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to reveal the Father's glory and to die as the Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, friends, this is what we see in verses 1 through 18, isn't it? Now, to be clear, I just want to be clear on the Johns, because we have a couple Johns here listed in the book. Uh, The Apostle John is not John the Baptist. Okay, so just in your minds, as you're setting forward, we're thinking about this this morning. Two different people, same name. And when you hear the word the Baptist, doesn't mean that he's a part of a Baptist church. A better understanding of it would be John the Baptizer. In other words, he... It's a sort of name. It was his reputation. He's like the dude that baptizes over there. You know, John the baptizer over there, right? He's the dude that's always baptizing people, you know. Hence the derogatory term that we put on our name, Baptist, right? Baptist is not a term of of love, all right? (laughs) It's a love. Them people dunking people all the time. What's going on? Um, so to be clear on who we're talking about here, but, but who is Jesus? We see here in verses 1 through 18, uh, John here gives us an introduction to what he's going to deal with. And he does it by t- talking about Jesus as the logos, the word. Right there at the beginning, he says the, the word. Now, now, why does John begin his gospel this way? Well, why not begin with the manger? I mean, everybody loves the manger, little baby Jesus in the manger and the wise men and the shepherds. And it's just all oh, it's what's going on here. Remember, John is in Ephesus writing to a Greco-Roman, a secular society, a lost society. And he wants to make clear that Jesus of Nazareth is more than a mere man, that he is God man. That he is truly man and truly God. To illustrate this, let me help you kind of by poking you a little bit. Um, I often poke you around Christmas time and encourage you to do to not do something. Remember what that is? That is do not celebrate Jesus's birthday. Don't don't have a happy birthday party for Jesus because it's confusing to children and adults alike. Here's why. When you celebrate a happy birthday for Jesus, you get people to focus on one, only one aspect of Jesus' nature. And there's nothing wrong with that, so I don't mean to offend you. But in doing that, people begin to think, oh, that's when Jesus began. That's when he started, right? Because that's when we start, right? When, we, when we're born. But see, John here is, is putting this within a bigger time frame. He's saying, no, 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 the word, this, this word who, is, who became flesh is the divine logos, the eternal son, the one who is, who is preexistent. So in verses 1 and 2, we learn that Jesus is the eternal preexistent one. He has no beginning. Hence, he has no birthday. See, in order to have a birthday... You had to have a beginning. Jesus had no beginning. You see, in the beginning, and there's a reason why we're studying John's gospel post-Genesis, because isn't that very familiar to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning? John is making very clear that in the beginning, when God spoke out, it was the word. It was Jesus who was speaking into existence, as we'll see in verses 3 and 5. We see also here in verse 1 that Jesus has ceaseless fellowship with the Father. That they are co-eternal. They are co-equal. 
that they are, are one, united, but diverse people. They're persons, but yet united. Furthermore, we see in verses 1, the end of verse 1 there, we see that, that he was with God and that the word, the logos, was God. Now, some have sought to distort this, but, but the point of this is, is that Jesus, the eternal word, the one who is incarnate in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, is God. Is God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. This is the point that John's making. To further prove that, he goes on in verses 3 and 5 to, to help us understand the relationship of the word, the logos, and creation. Notice here in verses 3 and 5 what he says. All things were made through him. And, all, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things and the giver of life to all things. This is what Paul argues in Colossians when he says that he is preeminence. If Jesus created everything and if he gives life to everything, then he is supreme over everything. Furthermore, we see there in verse 4 that, that he is the he is the giver of life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, Jesus Christ was the source of life to, to those that were dead. When we saw the Spirit breathe life into Adam and Eve, it was, it was Jesus who was giving life, the, the, the eternal logos. Like the sun in the sky, Jesus Christ shines light on all indiscriminately. Furthermore, in verses 5, we see... That Jesus is the invader of all darkness and that he is the conqueror of all darkness. That Jesus Christ comes into darkness where, and he becomes the light and that the light is greater than the darkness. A theme that would be particularly important as we get later into the gospel as we see Jesus driving back Satan and his armies. He is the light who came into the world. Not only is Jesus in relationship to God and creation, we see in verses 6 and 8, Jesus' relationship to John the Baptist. Now, of course, this will come up more later on in the chapter, but we see that he, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John was, wasn't the man. He, he wasn't the focus. He was sent from God. He was a representative. And we see here that that Jesus' relationship to John the Baptist was one of superiority. That John came to point people to Jesus. So there in verse 7 we see that he was an eyewitness. And so this morning if you're not a Christian and you're just beginning to think through these things. And this is all new to you and you're just trying to think like, okay, I'm trying to understand what's going on here. This guy, John the Baptist, who, who we're reading about here. He was an eyewitness. He saw Jesus with his own eyeballs. He touched him. He was like a real person. He physically knew the guy. And so we're getting his testimony that was given to the Apostle John. Eyewitness account. Someone who saw it. And John's ministry was a ministry of evangelism to prepare the way to invite others to believe in him. Who is Jesus? He was the one sent and enlightened. Well, in verses 9 through 13, we begin to see the Logos' relationship, Jesus' relationship with humanity. And we see a number of things here, didn't we? That he enlightens everyone who believes. He was the light and he brings light. Look there at verse 9. 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, John wants to make clear that with Jesus coming into the world doesn't mean that Jesus was of the world. One of the things that we get very confusing in the incarnation is that Jesus is a man, fully man, 100% fully man. But Jesus is not of this world. He is not a man like you and I. Notice there in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus has been in the world all along. From the very beginning, Jesus was in the world. This is what John is saying here. Jesus is, is the one who, who was there when, when Adam and Eve rebelled. He was there when, when God the Father called Abraham. He was there when the Israelites... Uh, Paul says that, that Jesus was the rock who sustained the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus was there when David ascended the throne. Jesus has been there. But notice he says the world did not know him. Paul would argue in Romans chapter 2 that the world rejected this knowledge of Jesus' presence and sought to go their own way. He came to his own, we are told then in verse 9, that is his, the Israelite people, his own people, and his own people rejected him. Of course, foretold by Isaiah. He was not recognized nor welcomed by his own. Yet he came. Though he was despised and rejected by men, he came with a purpose, as we see here. That all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. We see that Jesus is the life-giving spirit. He is the one who provides new life where there is death. He empowers those who believe in him to be born again. A theme that we'll see again and again, particularly in chapter 3, when Jesus and Nicodemus get together and have a conversation about the new birth. Finally, here in verses 14 through 18, we see the relationship or the purpose, the mission of the divine Lagos, the mission of the Son. Verses 14 through 18, we are told that he has come to reveal the Father's glory and to die for the sins of the world. A number of things here in verse 14. Of course, this might be the one verse you know well up from John's gospel, perhaps not. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The divine Lagos, the eternal preexistent one, came, clothed himself in human flesh. Jesus of Nazareth is his name. And he dwelt, he literally, literally tabernacled that word. John here is beginning an argument that he's going to develop. And that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was that place where God's people met. In the wilderness, which then was replaced by the temple. John is saying that Jesus is the place where you meet God. Do you want to meet God? You meet him in the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, John famously at the end of Revelation. How does he end Revelation? He ends Revelation with this same theme. Where do you meet God? Where is the dwelling place of God with men? But in Jesus and the Father. In Revelation chapter 21. Jesus came to reveal the Father's glory and reveals his own superiority to the law and Moses. In other words, Jesus came to fulfill the law and to give grace and truth. And so we see that in verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You remember Moses when he asked God in the giving of the law. He says, I'm going to see your glory. He's there on Mount Sinai with God. He's been conversing with God all day. He says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, you cannot. No one has ever seen God. And so the only way you can ever see God is through the person of Jesus Christ. For he is God. As we meditate on the greatness of Jesus Christ, and there's so much more. I mean, we could just spend all day thinking about these verses. And The point I want us to think in just meditating on them is that when we encounter the greatness of Jesus Christ, we encounter the greatness of our own sin. If it required God to send the, the eternal Logos, his son, if the mission was so great and, and so important and, and, and so big that it required the eternal Logos, not a messenger, not an angel, not a, another human, but it required the eternal word to come and to clothe himself in human flesh. How great must our sin be? How does this not reveal our desperate state before God? Our great sin required a great Savior that none other than Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, would do. It reveals also the glory of the Father, doesn't it? That He would send His Son That he would send the eternal word. That he would send the one who has the life-giving spirit to come and die. Clothe himself in human flesh for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, you are not as important as you think you are. Not until you recognize God's love for you in Christ. Friends, it further demonstrates the length of Christ's love for you. Friend, you may not have ever experienced love in your life from another human being. True love, good love, right love. Friend, know today that you can experience real love in the person of Jesus. He loves you. He loves you so much that he would die for your sins, that he would leave heaven's throne in the glory of his father and and come into this, this filth, this cesspool of humanity of rebellion and sin and and everywhere he turned he saw those created in his image defiling his image but yet he came what humility we find in christ but yet what love john reveals that jesus is the christ the long-awaited messiah that he has come to reveal the father's glory and to save the world from sin This leads then naturally to our next question. Why do I need to trust Jesus? As we continue to reveal here, uh, read here in the gospel, I want us to think about that second question that I gave you. Not only who Jesus is, but, but why should I trust in him? Why should I believe in him? You see, again, revelation evokes a response. When we learn something new, we, we respond to that new knowledge. And so here. When you read something about who Jesus is, it demands a response. And, and of course, no better response is given in the Gospel of John than John the Baptist himself confronting he sees Jesus and he responds. Well, how does he respond? And this is the testimony of John. 
verse 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? Well, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Why do you need to trust him? Well, we see here Jesus' or John's response to the presence of Jesus. We see first John's relationship to Jesus, the Messiah. He makes clear, he, he gets investigated, he gets in, interrogated, if you will, by, by the religious leaders or their cronies who came. The Pharisees have sent these men to investigate what John is doing. John, of course, is creating a, kind of a bit of commotion in town. He's out at the Jordan baptizing a bunch of people. People are coming to him, being baptized for the remission of their sins. And the religious leaders are quite frustrated by this because, well, of course, John is doing this without approval. And John makes clear in verses 19 through 20 that, hey, I'm not the Messiah. And then again, he, he says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the expected prophet. But he, rather, he clarifies who he is. He says, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I'm the one who, who's preparing the way of the Lord. I'm just a humble servant. I'm no one important. John demonstrates himself one of humility in announcing the supremacy of the Messiah's person. You see, John comes as a humble man to, to point others to Jesus, to point to their need for Jesus. And so John here gives his testimony there in verses 29 through 34, didn't he? You heard it. Look there again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Very u- unique language, doesn't he? In just a short phrase, he, he connects all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He says, you remember all those sacrifices? There it is. There he is. The one who comes and fulfills every one of them. The Lamb of God. Jesus is the sin-removing Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who came to die. Why do you need to trust Him? Because there's no one else God has sent to die in your place but Him. John also confesses in verses 30 and 31 that Jesus is the pre-existent one. Notice again what he says. This is the one who said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, if you know your Bible and you've read the other Gospels, 
uh, John the Baptist was born before Jesus. But here he says that he was before me. That is, that Jesus existed before I existed. Before I was conceived in my mother's womb, Jesus has existed. John says he is the preexistent one. He is the eternal one. The one we just saw and read about in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Furthermore, John testifies that Jesus is the recipient and dispenser of the Spirit. That he is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes from Jesus. And finally there in verse 34 we see, we have his final testimony that he bore witness that he is the Son of God. Why do you need to trust Jesus? Because he's the Son of God. He's the one come from God. He's your only hope. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is the substitute for sin. He is the only sacrifice. You see, your sin requires punishment. Paul says it this way, the wages of sin is death. See, we sin when we choose to live life our way rather than God's way. When we say, no, I know that's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to do what I want to do. Friend, this is the, the problem with every single person in this room. Every one of us are sinners by birth. We, we are born in sin. We are rebellious against God from day one. We didn't have to take a class on being rebellious. We all, by nature, are rebellious. And our rebellious nature against a good and gracious God is eternal death. One sin against an eternal God demands an eternal punishment. But Jesus Christ came, clothes himself in human flesh, and dies the death You and I deserve. He is our substitute. He went in our place. What Jesus will do later on in the Gospel of John, dying on the cross, is in your place, in my place. His life exchanged for our life. Friends, this is why you must trust in Him. There is no other way. There's no other plea before God's throne. When you turn up before God, perhaps today... And you stand before his throne and you have to give an account for your sin. It's not going to be, you know, I was a real good person. Yeah, I messed up here and then, you know. No, it's going to, it must be, it only can be the blood of Christ. If it is anything else, you will die in your sin eternally. Friend, turn from your sin today. Stop living life your own way. Christian, trust this morning that Jesus died for all your sins. Brother, sister, this morning, if you are overwhelmed by past sin, perhaps present sin, then just know Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He took them all away. Not just the really bad ones, but all of them. Look, let the Spirit cleanse your mind today and know that you have been Forgiven. Why do you need Jesus? Jesus is your only hope of eternal life. Finally, in verses 35 through 51, I want to ask that final question. How does Jesus transform my life? Very briefly, we are told of two scenes as Jesus calls his first disciples. First, we are told that there were two disciples of John the Baptist. 
one of them being named Andrew. And Andrew, on that day when he heard John the Baptist declare, Behold the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. You see John's humility, he just pointed to somebody else. He says, no, that's the guy you need to follow. And they followed him. And they ran after Jesus, and we were told there that they saw, and they, they followed him. Then verse 38, Jesus turned and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you'll see. So these two disciples came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with Jesus that day, for it was about the 10th hour. It was late in the evening. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said to him, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. If you were to think about that question, how does Jesus transform my life? Well, how did he transform Peter's life? He transformed Simon's, Simon's life by giving him a new name. We're told here that, that Andrew and another friend of his was following John the Baptist, and he, and he goes to follow Jesus. And notice what Andrew does. The very first thing Andrew does when, in his newfound faith in Jesus and his newfound following is what? He runs home and he goes and tells his brother, we have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. We see transformed life in the, in the life of Andrew. Andrew becomes an evangelist immediately. He becomes one who shares about the good news of Jesus Christ. That the Messiah has come. The Lamb of God has come. That sacrifice has come. And he introduces him to his brother. Not only do we see Simon's name being transformed and changed, you see Simon's going to become an entirely different person than what he once was. And the Gospel of John will display that before our eyes, how Jesus transforms people's lives. The great Apostle Peter, right? The rock. <laughs> the great one who will establish the church, the one, the one who will who will begin to build out God's kingdom on earth through the preaching of the gospel, through inspired scripture, is brought to the Lord by his brother. How many of us can testify that it was a family member who brought us to the Lord? It was a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle who brought us to the Lord. Friend, brothers and sisters, let us not neglect this great privilege of sharing the gospel with our family. As we reflect on what we just see here in this particular passage, we, we see that we as Christians must be evangelists. We must be about sharing the gospel winsomely to family and friends. And, and I know family is, is sometimes the hardest people, but it didn't stop Andrew. He ran home and he said, Peter, we found him. Simon, we found him. He's here. He's come. Brothers and sisters, when's the last time you shared the gospel with your family? 
When's the last time? And you might say, you know, I did it years ago. I took my kids to church and, and they've since rejected it. When's the last time you've opened your mouth and winsomely communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness and all of its greatness and called for them to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus? Let me commend you to do that today. Tell your friends and family at once. The Messiah has come. Jesus not only transformed the life of Peter, but as we see as this chapter concludes, two other men, two other followers of Jesus meet, meet him. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now I want you to just pause here for a very, very quick moment. I want you to really wrap your mind around what just happened there. We read it and we're like, okay, yeah, he just said something. So, okay, give me an understanding. Jesus shows up at this guy's work. And he says, I want you to quit your job. I want you to stop supporting your, yourself through your means of, of earthly employment. And I want you to spend the next three years wandering around with me. All right, I'll do it. No, I mean, it, it seems so like instantaneous, right? But friends, this is what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, you are seeing in 3D what it means to follow Jesus. It means giving everything up and following Jesus. It's illustrated in the life of these men who would sacrifice to follow Jesus. It costs to follow Jesus. It is not easy. It is not as simple as getting out of a seat and walking down front. If you think that following Jesus is, you know, standing in front of a bunch of Christians and telling them that you want to follow him, well, friends, that is not what it means to follow Jesus. Do you not think that Philip has some dudes in his life that laughed at him and made fun of him? And derided him and said, are you crazy? Are you nuts? Who is this guy? He's, he's the son of a carpenter. Kind of an illegitimate guy, too, from what I understand. We're not quite sure if that's really his dad or not. We're not quite sure. He's got a sordid past. You really want to follow this guy? What, are you going to make tables now? I mean, you had a lucrative business. You are a fisherman. And you're going to go make tables? You're going to make furniture? Come on, Philip. Oh, see, following Jesus transforms one's life. It transforms their life because their hope is not in the things of this world, but in another world, in the greater world. Well, we're told there in verse 44 that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him, whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really? Can anything good come out of Baltimore? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how did you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel has, a, has an encounter with Jesus, doesn't he? The one who knew him before he even saw him. And he confesses here that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he seeks to follow him. His life is transformed. It is turned upside down. And Jesus promises him that greater things are to come. 
You see, a part of following Jesus is seeing things greater than this world could ever offer. Experiencing things that are greater. And, and this again points back to that bigger theme that we understand that believing isn't just a momentary thing. It's not just an event that takes place sometime in the past, but it's an ongoing activity in your life where you are believing and seeing greater and greater things of God. The best is yet to come, brothers and sisters. Keep believing. The best is yet to come. This is what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. Oh, man, you saw something great there, didn't you? But guess what? You're going to see something greater. When I hang upon the cross, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending. When you see me ascend into heaven, you're going to see angels ascending and descending. You're going to see glory after glory. Greater things are to come. Friends, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came from the Father to reveal His glory. This is the one we want to give glory to and praise and repent of our sins and trust in. Do you believe in this person this morning? Do you believe in Jesus, that He is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the one eternal Word who came from the Father to save you of your sins? Do you believe in Him alone? Do you trust in Him alone? Friend, if not, turn today and trust in Him. He will save you from your sin. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we might know you better. That a better sermon was heard than the one preached. That you would continue to dig your word into our hearts. Hide it, Lord, that we might not sin against you. For your glory and our eternal good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.